no slides at all. I'm from Tennessee. I can't do two things at once. Uh, uh, so, so great to be here with you all. Uh, very Some familiar faces and then some people I just now met uh, this morning. And so, so grateful to be here. My name is Nick Pitts. I, I worked with Jim Dennison for a time. And so now uh, somehow you all did something wrong a couple of weeks ago, apparently, because you got to put up with me now. Uh, and so, uh, but nevertheless, I, I used to work with Jim, served as his special assistant for a time, and then transitioned over to Dallas Baptist University where I lead our Institute for Global Engagement, which is a geopolitical, social uh, social conservative policy think tank organization trying to make, give an answer to the cultural issues with biblical truth, and then out of that, do some radio and TV as well to try to extend the brand, but so grateful to be here with you all. But I'm not usually one to give uh, to give titles to talks, but I, I have to, if there was something, if there was a title that I had to give, this would be Risking It to Get the Biscuit. So we're going to risk it to get the biscuit today and figure out what that means. And so there's been this, there's this quote, though, that has just captivated my thinking uh, over these past a couple of months. And it's by an individual named N.T. Wright. I don't know if any of you all are familiar. He's a phenomenal uh, British Anglican author. He is just absolutely profound. And he had this quote that just is continuing just to resonate deeply within me and helping me try to understand what are some of the implications in my own life as well. And so the quote is this, you can tell someone to do something and and you'll change their day. You can share a story and you'll change their life. There's something about a story in Wright's observation that has the capacity and ability to be able to change our mentalities and in turn changes far more than just the day would hold. Uh, And so I'd like to share a couple of stories with you all. Uh, namely, one, how this Tennessean uh, took the same route as Davy Crockett and came out here to Texas. Hopefully not going to suffer the same fate. Uh, uh, I won't be going to San Antonio anytime soon. Um, and so, uh, so I came out here. I left my family, uh, and all of my family is in Tennessee. I left all of my family and, and traveled 704.5 miles, not that anyone's counting, uh, to Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. And I, I was leaving. I went to a public school called Austin P. State University and uh, did communications there and then went to seminary. And I was in a fraternity in my undergrad days. And so in a shocking twist, transitioning from fraternity life to seminary life uh, is a little different uh, than you might expect. And so uh, but one of the bummer things that I didn't realize is that I was supposed to be, uh, the orientation got started a couple of days before school started. And so I assumed I was supposed to be there on Saturday. Uh, So I drove the entire way with my family. We drove and moved me out. Well, the problem was I misread the documents and I wasn't supposed to be there until Monday. And so I was going to be in this building all by myself. And I'm an extrovert to the very core. And I was going to be in Fort Worth Hall all by myself for two days by myself. And so I quickly realized something. Uh, Fort Worth Hall was built in 1905, was renovated in 1907, hadn't been touched since. Um, and so it, was a, it wasn't necessarily friendly confines for me, especially being all by myself. And so I just naturally decided that I was just going to gravitate and pivot out and just go over to Hewland Mall. And I was going to go, and I was just going to go sit around in the Barnes and Noble because I figured I liked to read and hopefully I'd find somebody else that liked to read something along those lines we could have conversation. Well, 
fast forward a little bit, eventually get to the orientation, realize that I don't really want to be, uh, uh, I want to finish seminary. I don't necessarily want to be at seminary for a long time. So I decide that I'm going to blitz through this program as quickly as I could. And so it was a 97-hour program, and I and I charted it out. I figured I could get it through in 21 months. And so I was going to be taking anywhere from 17 to 23 hours every semester. And I just wanted to get through as quickly as possible. Uh, and you, you realize something very quickly in that a life principle. Uh, just because you're running away from something doesn't necessarily mean you're running to something. And so I was running away trying to get through until eventually we got to about March of that next year. And I realized that I'm going to be graduating, but I have no clue what I'm going to be doing after that. And so I just thought, okay, I'll go back home to Tennessee and I'll start making, uh, maybe go work in D.C. for a time. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to be doing. And so I'm beginning to work through uh, these applications and thinking through some of those things uh, as you're finishing up school. And then I'm taking 23 hours that semester and I've got 10 final exams that I'm going to be taking during those last uh, week of classes. And then all of a sudden, three days before final exams, Uh, three days before final exams are about to start, I start getting phone calls from an individual named Kurt. Uh, He worked at a church in Arlington, and he said he would be interested in talking with me. So I was like, okay, that sounds good. I'll try to squeeze in some time. I've got got a little bit of a, I'm kind of busy right now, Um, but uh, at the end of the day, I I need what you are thinking about offering me. (laughs) So, uh, and so naturally the conversation just went very well. Uh, it went well to the extent that he said, uh, why don't you come back and have another conversation with us, and we'll introduce you to some of the larger uh, staff as well. So go back and have another conversation. And I'm quickly moving back and forth in this because I'm living out of the library at this particular point in the semester. And so things are starting to pick up very quickly. And, and now, granted, you need to know that this is all happening during final exams, and I don't really have anywhere else to go. So now I've pretty much loaded my entire car, loaded my life into my car now, and I'm just driving back and forth between Fort Worth and Arlington for this opportunity. Eventually, the time comes that on Monday, where I'm going to be leaving Texas to go back to Tennessee, um, I'm leaving Texas to go back to Tennessee because my brother's graduating the same day as I am. So I'm not going to walk. I'm not going to do. I'm not going to graduate from seminary as in walk the commencement ceremonies. I'm going to go see my brother. Don't want to split up the family. And so I'm getting a phone call then at that moment from Kurt again. And so very quickly, within the span of about six days, this, these conversations have escalated very quickly. And so as I'm making my way uh, to Arlington, uh, again, we're having these conversations, and it's around two hours worth of conversations about some of the finer specific things. And, he, and I, he said, where's your schedule over the next couple of days? Well, I was like, well, taking more exams, and I'm probably going to try to load up the rest of my life into my car, into Ford Taurus, <laughs> and then hopefully we'll see what happens with things. Like, okay, so he knows there's some uh, uh, some uh, urgency with what I'm doing. So the next day comes, and Kurt uh, calls me up to his office, and I had just finished my last exam. And Kurt says, Nick, why don't you come up? I, I, I think we need to have a conversation, one last conversation. Uh, and so I'm realizing then that this might actually happen. This Tennessean might become a Texan. Uh, and it's beginning to be a little bit more daunting. And I remember this drive just like it was yesterday uh, because I'm, I'm driving uh, over on I-30 from Fort Worth all the way over to Arlington. 
and then I don't know how familiar you are with Arlington. There's a street called Cooper Street, and on Cooper Street, you're familiar with this place called 7-Eleven. Um, there's a 7-Eleven on Cooper Street, and there is uh, right on the side of the 7-Eleven. It's close to the church. There's the dumpster, and in my t- in my Taurus, with all of my earthly belongings packed to the brim because I'm thinking I'm going home and I'm just going to be moving home after this. I stop at this dumpster and I just feel the weight of this decision that I'm about to have to make. It's very, it's heavy upon me. Do I leave? Do I permanently leave my family and go back and stay in Texas? Or do I make my way back to Tennessee and pick back life up again? Feeling the weightiness of that decision. And I realized something. You got to risk it to get the biscuit. Sometimes you just got to make the hard choice and just hope it leads to a promising result. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm not unaware of the fact that many of us face decisions of similar weightiness. And I'm really captivated by the research on risk lately. There was this one uh, researcher out of Syracuse University. He put out an open call across the U.S. and asked individuals that were facing a significant or weighty decision if they felt paralyzed in that decision, but they could go either way, either stick to the status quo or take the risk. If they felt paralyzed in that significant decision, would they be willing to allow a coin flip to be able to determine that decision? Significant decision being a move, significant decision being to get engaged, significant decision buying the house, going for the car, a weighty decision. Do you know how many people answered this call? 26,000 people said, I am facing a significant decision, and I am willing to allow a coin flip to decide what I do with that. What they found, it's fascinating, the results the researcher found. What the researcher found is that regardless of whatever the outcome was, individuals that took the risk were happier after they made the decision. When you take the risk, regardless of outcome, you are happier. In the biblical narrative, Jesus is calling us to take risks. We call it walk by faith, right? We don't risk it to get the biscuit. We risk it to get the communal biscuit shortly hereafter. Um, Jesus says in Matthew 13, 44, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man finds, goes and hides again, and risks. He sells everything that he has in order to get the treasure. This individual, captivated by the kingdom of heaven, risks it to get the biscuit. And so what are some of those aspects today in 2019 that we can take from 2,000 years ago when Jesus uttered those words? That the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man finds, goes and hides again, and risks it in order that he might be able to buy the field. Well, I think there's a couple of components I want to tease out for us today that I think would be worth exploring when we think about the kingdom of heaven, the Christian walk, and taking risks in life. The first being this, you have to be looking for the opportunities. You have to be looking for those risks in life. This man was not someone that just was uh, just decided that he just stumbled upon this treasure. It said he was looking for the field. 
This is an individual was looking for those opportunities that he might be able to leverage and take this risk. There's an author that has captivated my mind. Her name is uh, Elizabeth Morrow. And Elizabeth Morrow says that Jesus and God has stuffed heaven into every nook and cranny of this earth. And those who are aware of the holiness on which we walk, walk barefoot. God has stuffed this world with opportunities so that we might take risks for the glory of his name, for the good of this world. And as the research indicates, the happiness in our souls. What does it look like to take risks? The first is that we have to be individuals that are looking for the opportunities to take those risks for his name. So what keeps us from looking? Well, I would say that there's two things in particular that could keep us from looking, at least. One, normalcy, and two, technology. Normalcy being the first. Um, there was a, I, I was keenly aware and I laughed when I read this uh, survey recently because I realized how true it was of my own life. Uh, it found that 56% of men eat the same breakfast every single day. Am I the only one, no? <laughs> same day. Uh, I can't tell you how many days I wake up every morning and I will eat a metrics protein bar uh, with peanut butter because peanut butter is God's gift to a broken world. Um, smooth, not crunchy, y'all. Uh, those crunchy people, you have character issues and you need to repent. Um, uh, so, uh, so I'll eat that protein bar. I'll have a Mighty Mocha coffee because uh, there's a, I have a friend named Julian that works at a coffee shop I like to talk to. Um, and then I will uh, have some fruit as well. I've been, I've been having that meal for years. It's kind of <laughs> pathetic. Uh, no, actually it's not. It's, just, it's loyalty. It's a good character issue. Um, uh, so, so normalcy. But how much of that is just our own lives is going of how, how things can just become so mundane. Uh, we can just wake up every morning and do the same things, make our way. Uh, Tuesdays are for this thing. Wednesdays are for this thing. The nights are for this thing. The weekends are for this thing. Sunday morning we come here. Sunday afternoon we do this. How often is it that we kind of just run on cruise control and we kind of forget to be looking for those risks that we might be able to take? Jesus wasn't operating on cruise control. One of the things that I'm captivated by is that Jesus has this story in Matthew 10, and Jesus is, is, is bringing, he, there's an individual that is rushing to him because he wants his daughter to be healed. And, and so uh, he's allowing himself to be very present in that moment. But what happens when he's present in that moment, there's another individual that's tugging at the hem of his garment. And what is this woman tugging at the hem of his garment? He realizes power has left him because she was a woman that was suffering greatly because she was bleeding significantly for a significant period of time. And what does Jesus do in that moment? He was so present in that moment, refused to allow normalcy to allow him to be swept away, that he had an opportunity to be able to risk a conversation with her and eventually to heal her in that moment. He took the risk. Not only, will, not only will Jesus refuse to allow the normalcy, the mundane, Jesus isn't eating the same breakfast every day, uh, but also technology has that propensity to be able to keep us from being fully present in the moment to be able to look at uh, the risks that are around us. Um, there's this thing called an iPhone. I don't know if you all have heard about it. Um, it 
it has a propensity to be very uh, shaping towards us. The research on what the smartphone is doing to us is very stunning. The average millennial is looking at their phone 140 times a day. 140 times I'm pulling out my phone. I would just like you all to know I haven't pulled out my phone once, but I'm going to make sure that I, I catch up later on uh, and, and afternoon. Uh, relative to driving, many of us took cars to be able to get over here. The average American will look at their phone for four and a half minutes for every hour that they're driving. Doesn't that bring you great comfort? <laughs> um, and so uh, four and a half minutes for every hour. I don't know if you're an individual that likes to use their phone while they're walking. Are you, are you if you use your phone while you're walking, could you please raise your hand? May, don't make me be the scarlet letter right now. No, I'm just <laughs> if you use your phone while you're walking, social science calls you a dead walker. Uh, because you are you are unaware of your surroundings, and unfortunately, there's been some um, bad things that have happened. Obviously, we've seen some of the a rise in pedestrian deaths, uh, uh, upwards of 6,000 this past year as well. Certain states like Hawaii and Oregon have instituted laws now to, to say that when you're in a crosswalk, you're not allowed to use your phone anymore. Just to be able to limit that. Are you an individual that has maybe suffered from a phantom pain? Have you ever uh, had your phone uh, and you thought it was vibrating and you realized it wasn't? You had it, you looked, and you're like, oh. Or you thought you heard it ring and it wasn't. And you were suffering from what's known as phantom pain in that moment. It has become such a part of us now that we think we're hearing things now and we're feeling things now because smartphones have changed us. And then not only have they changed us physically, but they've also changed us mentally as well. There's a, there's a research by an individual named Nicholas Carr. He wrote a book called The Shallows, and he gives this beautiful illustration. He says that there used to be a day that we were like scuba divers in the word. When we get into, when we get into reading, we would dive deeply into these words. But now we are like jet skiers riding atop the waves. It's even affected our mental capacities as well. What is technology doing to us? It's the beautiful, 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 glorious opportunity for us to be able to see things that we might not be able to see. I'm exceedingly grateful for technology because it allows me to be able to see the most beautiful five-year-old niece that's still 700 miles away from me. I'm so grateful. Technology allows me to send out an email. No, there's no such thing as free lunch. It's kind of free, uh, but I don't have to postage and things like that very quickly every morning uh, to people. But technology also has some hindrances to it as well, doesn't it? It can keep us from having conversation. It can keep us from engaging. It can keep us from seeing the risks that we might be able to take. So what are some practical things that we can do? You know, there's two research studies, one's out of Drexel and another's out of Regent. They say that the, even the mere presence of a phone on a table hinders connection between individuals. Just the mere presence of it. If you put your phone on your desk, uh, especially for people like me, we're kind of slow. Uh, I need a running start to get thinking. Uh, the mere presence of a phone, according to a Regent study, hinders your cognitive abilities. You don't even have to be on it. You can be looking at it. And we've all seen that, right? You're looking over, you're looking over. It's, it's very fascinating. So what if, what if, what's a very practical step you can take? Well, one of the things that we've instituted, I live with uh, 
three other Aggies, so you know how to pray for me. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, so I live with three other Aggies, and what we do is we, we're living very intentional lives. And so every Sunday night, we get together for dinner to figure out ways that we can encourage one another and, and call one another out, help one another become better men. Um, and so what we do, though, is we situate our phones in the center of the table. And whoever picks up their phone during dinner time has to pick up the bill as well. Um, and it's actually it's, it's gone very well and <laughs> for me. Uh, but all that to say, technology as well as normalcy has the propensity to keep us from seeing the risks that God is beckoning us to take all around us. What's that risk, that opportunity that we might be able to take? And the second point that I want to make that we're seeing out of this Matthew 13, 44 is this. You have looking, but you also have inevitably risking. And that's tough because as, as many of us are keenly aware, whenever you take a risk, inevitably that means you're sacrificing momentarily, right? You're, you're deciding that I'm going to leverage a certain asset. I'm going to leverage and be without for a time believing it to be true that this is measured and calculated to such an extent that it's going to be tied back to the reward that will come. But from a Christian understanding, when we're thinking about risking for the kingdom of God, here's the beautiful thing, that we are giving, but we know the truth of what Jesus says, that anyone who tries to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake will gain it. Think about this. This is this is so freeing for me. It's freeing for me just thinking about the theology, one might say, of the kingdom of heaven and God's provision in our life. Think about this. You woke up this morning. God didn't wake up because God neither sleeps nor slumbers, it says in Psalm 121.5. Not only does God not sleep nor slumber, but think about this. In Proverbs 15.8, it says the righteous is the righteous prayer is his delight. When you woke up this morning, God was so delighted to hear from you. He was the child at Christmas that was beating at the door, waiting to hear from you. Think about this. Not only was he waiting to hear from you, but unlike the child, he, he is going to infinitely provide for you. It says in Psalm 146, 5, that he opens up his right hand and he satisfies the desire of every living thing. It says in Philippians 4.19 that he will provide for our every need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. It says in Romans 8.31 that if he gave us a son, how will he not also give us all things? This morning, today, tomorrow, into eternity, you can walk out these doors not needing anything because your God has provided everything. And we can look to the cross for evidence number one. When you risk, you're inevitably saying, I'm giving something. I'm taking a sacrifice of something and hoping for a reward. When a Christian risks, what he always knows is this is a sure bet. Why? Because according to that Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, anything that's done in faith will not be futile. We come from a long line of individuals that have taken a variety of risks. You 
decided to leave all that she knew in order to be with a woman, a, a, a mother-in-law that was literally bitter is how her name was translated, Mara. She left all that she knew. She risked comfort, and what did she find? More than she could imagine. Abraham left his family. He left all that he knew in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans in order to pursue after a dream and a vision that the Lord God had given to him. Lydia risked financially in in Acts 16. And when she risked financially to start the church, little did she know that her financial gift was going to make the church blossom all throughout Europe, which inevitably brought it here to us as well 2,000 years later. We come from a long line of risk takers, and the first and the chief of those risk takers was our Savior, Jesus. Why? Because Jesus in Luke 22 was willing to risk, namely his life. He laid it all on the line. He said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. And what did Jesus do? He listened to his father. His father said, take the risk. And what happened? He risked his life, but what did he get? He gained it back. He was resurrected. And he was given a name that's higher than every name, it says in Philippians 2. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He risked his life in order that we might find life in him. He risked it all in order that we might experience the fullness of joy and completion in him in John 14. And he is beckoning us to a life of risk. So what does it mean for you today to take a risk? What's the decision that you're facing right now? The conversation that you need to have? The opportunity that presents itself right before you to take the risk? Ask the Father. He will provide an answer. I can tell you how my story has somewhat ended in my living history. I left all my family and friends in Tennessee. And you know what I found? I found a very receptive Texas community that accepts guys that don't like to wear socks. <laughs> you, can't, you can take the boy out of Tennessee, but you can't take the Tennessee out of the boy. I have gained a family of far greater than I will ever know friends and rich relationships that have made me a very blessed man. And I've realized not only what the biblical narrative testifies, but the social science research justifies is the reality that when we take risks, we are happier. And it makes it all the more easier for us to obey the command of our Lord that says to rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Let's pray. Gracious God, uh, I thank you so much these people. I thank you for the time that you've uh, allowed us to be able to have. And so, Father, now I ask that your spirit would come and help us bring to mind what are those risks that you're asking us to take? Where do we need to risk it to get the communal biscuit? What are those opportunities that you've put before us that's going to require a little bit of sacrifice on our end? So, Father, I, I ask that your spirit would identify those in our spirit that deep would call to deep, and that, Father, that you would bring immeasurable peace as we consider the decision that we'll have to make. I ask that you would provide abundant grace as we think about 
the weightiness that will fall on us from this risk. I ask that you would bring exceeding amounts of comfort because we believe it to be true that when we put ourselves out there in risk, vulnerability usually follows therein. And may your comfort match our vulnerability. God, I love you, and I thank you so much for showing us the greatest example of risk in Jesus who is willing to lay down his life for us. And Father, help us to figure out where in our lives we need to lay something down in order that we might find that there's more life in laying it down than in holding on tight. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.